0: Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of God and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery to me. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. And made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. You may be seated. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer one more time, praying that He will use uh, the faulty words of men to open our hearts, that the Holy Spirit might bless His message this day. God, I pray that You will bless the word that is taught today. May it change our lives. May it make us more like Christ. May we not be the same for having heard this. May we not just be edified and encouraged, Lord, but may we become more holy. May you be glorified in our teaching and understanding of your word this day. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to set a little bit of a, a preface for you. I'm going to, in a form of rebellion of sorts, use the name Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah when talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So. For those who weren't here um, in the, I think it was my very first uh, sermon, so this would have been back in maybe September last year. Uh, I talked about um, how Daniel, when he writes, you'll see sometimes he uses Hebrew names and sometimes he uses the names the Babylonians gave him or Nebuchadnezzar specifically gave them. And so Belt with the T is Daniel when written about by the Babylonians, or spoken of by the Babylonians. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Babylonians. But then Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah is from the, from the Hebrew perspective. And you'll notice, as you read through Daniel, that Daniel intentionally uses the, names, the name Daniel, or, Hannah, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, when talking about his perspective, or what he saw. So even in Daniel 2 earlier, he went to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to pray that God would reveal the dream to, to Daniel so that they could then, he could present it and save their lives. But then here we see Nebuchadnezzar is taking action, and it's almost being recorded by like a court recorder or someone who was there saying, Nebuchadnezzar did this, and he did it to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, um, anyway, as we go forward, in case you're wondering, when I say names, who I'm talking about? When I say Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I'm talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. um, But I'm going to take the side of the of the Hebrews, the side of Daniel and his perspective, not the um, pagan name choice uh, done by Nebuchadnezzar. So, I have a question for you. I I have several actually today, and the first starts with, "Do you know God?" Do you know God? Do the people around you know God because of you? Does your family know God? Does your spouse know God because you know God? Do your coworkers know God because you know God? Do your children know God because you know God? The people who are around you, your environment, if I were to look at it, if we were to go look, take you out of your environment, wherever it might be, your work, your home, your family, and we were to look at it, would there be signs all over that there is someone who knows God in the center of this environment? Are the things around you being moved, changed and molded in one way or another, good or bad, because you know God? Or do you live in isolation? Would someone not be able to notice that you know God? Do people treat you the same as someone who doesn't know God? Are there signs in your life that you know God based on the people and situations around you? I think we're going to get a really good glimpse of what that looks like here with Daniel and his effect on Nebuchadnezzar and God on Nebuchadnezzar. We're actually going to be looking through quite a bit of Daniel, different slices of Nebuchadnezzar, kind of doing the same stuff over and over again. We're going to see the consequence of Christians living in a fallen world where, forget the victim mindset, the world is coming on me, I'm I'm suffering, the world is attacking me. Well, what are the consequences to the world of the Christian? We're going to look at that and look at the example of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. First, uh, we're going to look at actually our last two verses in our passage. So we have four verses in total. We're going to look at the last two verses first, verses 48 and 49. And we're going to look at the actions uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes in adorning and, and honoring Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then we'll go back and look at this profession, the words of Nebuchadnezzar. But I want to first look at at the actual action and the blessing um, of these men from Nebuchadnezzar. So I'll read verses 48 and 49 again out of Daniel 2. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So what's happening here is you have, if you notice, there's clearly a distinction. There's a provincial, a, a regional blessing given to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These three are given a, a position of authority of some sort within the like, county, in our perspective, or in the community or city of Babylon. Babylon. But Daniel is retained and saved for the royal court, so he gets a position of even higher standing. He gets to stay there, and he now rules over the very people whose lives he saved. All of these magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, he's, he's now ruling over all of them. And Nebuchadnezzar is just flowing forth with blessings on these people. And I would say it's a really wise move. It's a really wise decision to bless these men. And although I would say it would seem Nebuchadnezzar's motivation is not um, to honor God by doing this. It is instead, hey, you've brought me relief. I haven't been able to sleep. I've got stuff to give you. I'm going to reward you. It's still in the end is a wise move, actually, not just for him and for those, but for his whole kingdom to have done this. Uh, so we'll we'll end up seeing here where Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom, although already God has given um, the Battle of Carchemish and subsequently over Judah, God has turned these nations over to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, so some level of success. There is clearly later in Daniel an even higher peak level of success that comes as a result uh, or from during this time period where these men are in some way in authority. And we later see with like the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? These three are bumped up another level of authority within the province. Um, we continue to see Daniel brought again by Belshazzar, and there's benefits done to the community as a whole. So much so to the point where Nebuchadnezzar is proud of what he did, right? And he ends up getting punished and driven insane and growing long nails that almost are like a talon of a bird and crazy long hair, almost like the uh, the feathers of a bird. And um, And so Nebuchadnezzar clearly has pride over this Kingdom and its time of prosperity, and I would say there are two reasons why there should be prosperity in this kingdom, and why it's a wise move for Nebuchadnezzar. One, well, we are already told at the end of Daniel one, kind of that summary of of the role and life of Daniel and these other three in uh, the Babylonian court. We are told that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that these men were blessed with knowledge and wisdom and understanding greater than 10 times that of all his wisest men. So putting smart people in good and powerful positions, good move, good just administrative move. But there's more than that going on here. I want us to look actually at the Abrahamic covenant. So we're going to turn, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at the first three verses. So this is the call of Abraham. God has plucked Abraham, out of no doing of Abraham's, God has plucked him and gives him a promise that is the, a just, uh, an absolutely wonderful promise. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now Yahweh said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Then for the focus of what we're talking about here in verse three, I will bless those who bless you and, uh, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through God's covenant people, there will be blessing brought to the world. There will be an impact on the world depending on how they treat God's covenant people, how they treat the children of Abraham, how they treat Abraham. We, we, we see this later on. We see um, Abraham's interaction with Melchizedek, and then further on. Eventually, we even get to if you remember the teaching of Joseph, who has very similar parallels to Daniel. Joseph rises up, gets a position of authority because of the interpretation that God blessed Joseph with for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gives him, rises him up. And what do we see happen? The whole world is blessed because Egypt not only has a time of prosperity, but they keep the world from starving to the point where the children of Abraham, including Judah, from which our savior ultimately comes, are able to be fed because they come back to Egypt. So the whole world is blessed from the blessing done to the children of Abraham, to God's covenant people. And we see that here, going on here with Daniel. This blessing is a blessing that will then reward Nebuchadnezzar. So again, a shrewd move. And I think if we look at the Abrahamic covenant a little further, we'll notice, at first you might think like, well, there are a lot of people who just give gifts to people. Is there really that much going on here? But I, I wanna actually show you the, the highlighting of the gift giving here and the significance of it, because later, the same type of thing is attempted and fails. There's an attempted blessing Of God's people, attempted blessing of Daniel, and it doesn't work out, and we'll be able to see the contrast. So uh, start by looking back in our Daniel 2 passage. I want you to focus in on a few things here. Um, If you look at verse 49, uh, we can see that Daniel made a request of the king. So Daniel puts forth a boon, requests a boon, hey, will you bless these other men who are not here before you today? And God, God, or excuse me, God grants it through Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar grants that blessing. But let's look to, to Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, and his attempt to bless Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 5. And I'll, I'll kind of set the stage for you on what's going on in Daniel chapter 5. So in Daniel chapter 5, we have Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, ruling And he throws a festival. And if you remember, again, back to the very first sermon, the very first two verses of Daniel 1, the house of God, specifically within, so Judah falls to Babylon, but within that, the house of God, the temple is sacked. It's plundered. The vessels of the house of God are taken into the the storage rooms and the prize rooms, right? I'm thinking a Scrooge McDuck type of vault of wonderful things, in there are all these vessels of God. And we don't really hear anything about him through these future chapters, but he goes full Scrooge McDuck. He says, let's show him off. Let's show off my great wealth. He pulls them out, Belshazzar does, and starts throwing an opulent festival to the gods where they are getting drunk and experiencing debauchery and doing evil pagan worship with the vessels that belong to the house of God. That's a no-no. So he's doing all of this, And what happens? A hand appears in the middle of the festival. It starts writing on the wall, right? starts writing. He turns ghostly white. He starts getting real shaky. Belshazzar needs an interpretation. Look with me now at um, Daniel 5, uh, 13 through 16. So at this point, he's searching for an interpretation. Um, And um, and right prior to this, the queen comes in and says, hey, do you remember your dad had a guy for this? There was a guy who did this before. He interpreted. Maybe we should bring him in. Belshazzar, being refreshed or reminded of what happened, says uh, in verse 13, it says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, That's what Belshazzar is doing here. If you are able to do this for me, if you can ultimately assuage my fears, I have a reward for you. Okay, so a desire, I would say it's very similar to Nebuchadnezzar. The difference here is he's not saying, here's the reward for you in the first place. Nebuchadnezzar is more of a stick kind of guy and before had said, I will kill everyone if you don't do this. But here we have, again, an attempt or a desire to reward the person who does an interpretation for him. But in the very next verse in 17, see Daniel's difference. And remember, before Daniel made a request of Nebuchadnezzar, this time it says, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. There's a stark difference here. Daniel is not looking for anything from this king who has just blasphemed Yahweh with Items from Yahweh's house on earth. Daniel wants nothing with this. So this would not be a blessing to Daniel at all. And what ends up happening is he interprets it. And he interprets a very dark message. And yet, Belshazzar goes, I'm going to still try to do, pull this trick. I'm going to try to bless him. Belshazzar ends up uh, telling him to, to get um, clothed. Uh, let's see here with um, uh, clothed. Uh, let's see here with the gold and uh, the purple. Uh, let's see here. Uh, verse 29, excuse me, Daniel five twenty-nine. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So if you stop there, you should feel like, hmm, it seems very similar. But the very next verse, rather than Nebuchadnezzar, who received blessing and peace through his kingdom because of these men, because this was no true blessing of Daniel, in verse 30 it says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So again, I point out the, the contrast here. Daniel is clearly being blessed because he has made a request, and he has granted it, and we end up seeing this prosperity and I would say this Abrahamic covenant. We actually see again in in Daniel. We see this this type of um, I will bless who you bless, or who blesses you, and I will curse who curses you. We actually see the um, the the opposite side of this. Not just the blessing. We see the curse in Daniel in the lion's den. If you remember in Daniel in the lion's den, or uh, Daniel has these men, these wise men, who are scheming against him, and Darius the Mede, who's now ruling. Um, These wise men that are scheming against him goes to Darius the Mede and says, hey, the law says this, and yet this guy prays to Yahweh. He's not praying to you and your gods. Uh, We should throw him in the lion's den, right? We should punish him because that's what the law says. And Darius, feeling cornered by this and greatly distressed, doesn't want to do it, but does it anyway. Very Pontius Pilate feel, if I were to say so. Has this understanding someone's innocent and yet is going to punish him anyway. And he throws him in the lion's den. God blesses him, lions do not eat him. But if we look at Daniel 6, flip over, hopefully you're still in Daniel 5, just flip over, look at verse 24. We will read of the multi-generational retribution that Darius the Mede punishes these men who tried to frame and, or not frame, but to, to get Daniel killed. We see what the consequence is to those men and their families, Daniel 6, 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. The blessing and cursing of God's people carried with it great significance, great consequence. And so I'm using this again. If we're pulling us back to the main point of what we're trying to talk about today in our message, to sh- to highlight the there is an impact to the non-believing world for what goes on with believers. And although God has fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant and is continuing to fulfill it as He continues to bless the children of Abraham and continuing to make a larger kingdom that is inherited by Christ, there are still an impact on society for the presence of God's people. There is an impact that goes beyond, um, beyond isolation. So I would say maybe we can't choose to, to cause people to bless us. We can't, cause, we can't affect whether people curse us. But what we can do is we can act faithfully. We can be in obedience to God. We can make it clear of where we stand, just as these men have in each of these scenarios, just as Daniel has, we can act faithfully, and God will use that for consequences around us. We see this to this day, the same thing, that the faithful acts of Christians has a ramification and consequence on the world. When Wayne goes to the abortion clinic and tries to convince moms not to murder their children, is there not a blessing to the mother who chooses not to kill their child and instead now doesn't have to live with a lifetime of guilt and shame over that? Isn't there a blessing to the child for getting a life now? That act, right, whether they become believers or not, they are, they are being affected by God's covenant people and the faithfulness of God's covenant people. They are being blessed by it. Similarly, when Paul, uh, when, when Paul Stephen, and um, I think it was Gary was out there too, We're fixing the gate to this church, right? It might seem small, but they're fixing the gate to be able to drive in. Is not the school blessed because of their faithfulness? When we have Christian employees who work as unto the Lord and not for men, are not our secular, probably even antagonistic to God workplaces, blessed because of faithfulness of God's people. If you are living your life in a way that is faithful to God, the world will be impacted. It will not be on its own. It's not in a silo. There is consequences to everything around you. Whether it's Brandon and Bethany taking care of children, foster children, whether it's someone in here parenting a child or welcoming someone who's a non-believer, whatever it might be, there are consequences on this world for faithfulness. And so I'm gonna bring us back to our original question. If I were to look at your life, if anyone were to look at your life, and look at everything around you, is it clear that you are faithfully knowing God? Do you know God? Do the people around you talk differently to you because you're the Christian? Do the people around you act differently? Do your coworkers feel different because you are a Christian? Do you have family members avoiding topics with you? because they don't want to go there. They know where you're going to go if you get into a whole sphere of things. The act of being a Christian is a light on a hill. There is consequence to everyone around us. And if you are not experiencing consequences around you, I think you should be concerned. I think you should be concerned. I think of the an example to me of, of this of faithful and unfaithful living by me in the workplace, is I I just recently had a coworker who in a meeting used used the name of God as part of an expletive in the middle of a work meeting. And it was said in a way that nobody else, no coworker, no one's gonna react. I quickly get a chat, oops, I am sorry. I used the Lord's name in vain and I, I've been trying to hold back from doing that. I've been trying to, to not do that. And then he specifically added another chat after that, because I know your faith is important to you. Now, in this situation, I don't know that he is honoring God anymore because he's trying to you know, play nice with me and my faith. And yet, there is a natural ramification for someone being in a meeting room without me saying a word knowing that someone who frequently talks about their worship of God, their role in their church, and talks about what's going on in church openly. There are consequences. In this case, it's great. And I'm sure for every one coworker who tries to act a little more morally or what they know, understand as Christiany, y there's probably five avoiding me and avoiding my desk and avoiding talking to me because they know the things I'm going to talk about. Nevertheless, there's a consequence. There's an impact. On the other side, I had someone who just found out at work, who has known me from a life for, from my entire work life, has known me a while back. They found out I became a pastor, that I became ordained. They were shocked. They were like, what, a pastor? They were completely surprised, and it, it was perhaps one of the most shameful moments for me recently where I realized, looking back at my interactions, how much had I tried to conform to the world and be comfortable and fit in and make the gospel comfy and easy for people around me so that I'm you know, i not rocking any boats. I'm not what you think. I'm not out here. Maybe you've seen some street preachers. That's not me. And I wasn't acting out the faithfulness that God commands me to in the workplace. And I'd imagine for all of us, we're experiencing things like this daily in our own households. Do even you in your marriage, even if the other person is a believer, you talk about God on Sundays, but when you talk about your day and talk about the consequences of your day, Does God come up as part of it? Is the worship of God, is the prayer, is what's going on? When you talk about the aches and pains of the day and the wounds and the things that are caused, are you talking about God with your spouse? Does your spouse clearly feel that you know God? Same with children. When you parent and discipline and love on them, or other people's children, is it clear you know God? As we think about these things and think about the impact of the world, I'm going to bring us back to our passage and bring us back to Daniel 2, looking at Nebuchadnezzar. We see this, and we're beyond just the Abrahamic covenant, we see this consequence of Christian living, the consequence of faithfulness in a secular world. Look at what words Nebuchadnezzar has to say in Daniel 2, 46 through 47. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods, Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. These words have truth in them. There are true things said in here. And what does Nebuchadnezzar know of Yahweh? The Yahweh of Judeans, what does he know? Why would Nebuchadnezzar know to say any of this stuff at all? Well, let's look back just a little bit further. Let's look at Daniel's approach to Nebuchadnezzar. If you look with me uh, at uh, Daniel 2 26 uh, through 28, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he, made no, uh, he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. The dream, Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. So he, here we go. He's referencing that God is a king of heaven and a revealer of mysteries. Well, then further down, if you look now at 29 and 30, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries may known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Again, Stating information about God teaching um, this pagan king. Then if you look further down at 37 and 38, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given, positioning where God is in relation to this king, the just stated king of kings, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. Rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Again, framing this up, talking about the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar, but God's role to, in in relation to the king of kings. And then um, uh, in 44 through 45, so right before our passage today. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven. Every true thing that Nebuchadnezzar has said in here about Yahweh being God of God, king of kings, revealer of mysteries, he is regurgitating what he was just taught by by Daniel. Daniel is discipling him already. Daniel is barely in his presence, and he is spewing forth the truth and faithfulness of God. And let's see how it affects a pagan king throughout his life. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to uh, the next chapter. The fiery furnace. We're gonna look at uh Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They end up getting thrown into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow before the great statue that Nebuchadnezzar had um, had built. Um, and when when they uh, refuse to bow down, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. There's a fourth being in there. This this angel angelic being is in the fiery furnace. They are saved, they are preserved. And Nebuchadnezzar has a response to this. Look with me at um, Daniel three twenty-eight through 29. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, "'Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "'who has sent his angel and delivered his servants "'who trusted in him and set aside the king's command "'and yielded up their bodies "'rather than serve and worship any other god except their own, "'except their own god. "'Therefore I make a decree,' Any people or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What we just read is that Nebuchadnezzar now, instead of stating a few true things, revealer of mysteries, God of God, kings of kings, ruler of heaven, he now states... Uh, in this passage, he speaks of a ministering angel. Uh, he talks about a singular God rather than a god of a pantheon. He speaks of uh, salvation from God as a result of trusting in God, as a result of faith. He acknowledges that they 're upholding the Torah, that they are having no other God before Yahweh, that they are only worship there is one God they worship, not a God of the gods. They worship the one God. He speaks of salvation coming from God in a way that no other being can offer salvation. Now, still, Nebuchadnezzar will reveal, it doesn't mean that he is a believer or knows God or that God knows him, but he clearly knows more of God. He knows more about God than he did when Daniel first taught him about God. Time has gone by, and I would, I would argue or speculate that Nebuchadnezzar being, or Daniel being in Nebuchadnezzar's royal court day in and day out Providing faithful counsel and wisdom, from the perspective of a believer, is going to have an effect on Nebuchadnezzar. But at a minimum, what's clearly happening here is through the interactions, God is choosing to enlighten Nebuchadnezzar more and more about the truths of God. Maybe not the truth, but of truths of God. Now, if we look again, and Nebuchadnezzar has to go through a third episode of sinfulness where he has has to be made humbled. He has to be humbled, and, and he ends up making a profession. He makes one as a result of what later happens in the chapter at the beginning of Daniel 4. But we'll look specifically at Daniel 4, 34 through 37, where this is, this is almost, I mean, it sounds almost like a psalm when you hear this coming out of Nebuchadnezzar now. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdoms endure from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He has just acknowledged in all of this many th- true things. By, saying, by talking about his ways being just, he has acknowledged the holiness of God. That he is not just God. He doesn't just have power. There is now a difference to this God who is wholly unlike anyone else and separated differently than any other pagan God or any other being that Nebuchadnezzar has known to this point. And clearly this being is just. He is right. There is goodness that is to be known here. I would still argue I don't think Nebuchadnezzar is saved. Uh, We will talk about this a little bit more later and definitely later as we get into Daniel. But we see here that there has been progressive understanding from Nebuchadnezzar about the ways of God. And he has had some special personal interactions as a result of God's hand in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God is the one doing the changing. God is the one doing the teaching. And yet, even though we know that God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, how does God choose to do it? Through the means of faithful people. A faithful covenant people. God has chosen and seen fit to have a faithful man in Daniel at the right hand of Nebuchadnezzar to give him the teaching. God has seen fit to have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to see their faithfulness to stand to the point of death in the fiery furnace to teach and impact Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately teach and impact us, right, in our learning from scripture. The consequence of faithful living is to not live in a silo that no one knows about your faith, and no one acts differently, and no one—it's not—we're not not putting on camouflage. We should not be putting on camouflage in the workplace for our Christian identity. Instead, the world should be naturally moving around us in ways that are different, that God works through the means of faithful living from his people. And I want to bring us to our last point here when considering— this passage, and thinking through all of this. I have said that your faithful living should result in impact and knowledge of God for those around you, right? We opened up with the question, if we were to look at everyone around you, do they know God because they know you? They should know about this God the way Nebuchadnezzar knows about this God from Daniel. But to know God is not to be known by God. To know God is not to be known by God. So for those here, do not be deceived that you know things about God. Nebuchadnezzar knows things about God and has to get humbled over and over again. His son, who is, if, if he knew God and was now training up his son, his son has, is, is doing some of the ultimate blaspheming of God and his holy instruments. There is no sign or proof or in this life of Nebuchadnezzar that he is known by God. And God is working out his will through Nebuchadnezzar and wants Nebuchadnezzar to be humbled as he wanted Pharaoh to be humbled. But Pharaoh's heart was still made heavy and he would be drowned by that heavy heart. Just because there is a knowledge of God does not mean God knows you. Turn with me, um, turn with me to uh, James chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want to say something that probably for those of us who have been in reformed churches for a while, it's going to feel uncomfortable. The difference between knowing about God and being known by God, the difference when we examine our lives and look at what's going on around us, is good works. It's good works. Turn with me as we look at James 2, 18 through 22. I probably should have been turning while I was talking there too. James... Yeah. We go. James 2, um, 18 through 22. But someone will say... You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. The works of you will not get you the faith. It is the work of the Messiah that got the faith to you. Without the work of the Messiah, there is no faith. But without faith, there is no works. There are no works, right? Without works, there is no true faith. How can someone who reads this and knows that works and obedience of God should abound from faithfulness, go into a world, work it every day, leave it, and nobody around you treat you or know anything different about God. It's not possible. It's not possible. If people around you are not different in some way because of your knowledge of God and your, your claimed faithfulness, I would argue, are you doing the works? Are you doing the good works? Even the demons know and shudder. If you're sitting here today saying, "I know God," I'm confessing things. I'm saying things that are true in church. Great. The demons said good things or said true things about God. The demons were rightly afraid even of God. They had the fear of fear of the Lord. But the demons are they saved? No. There are no good works to be seen. If you are claiming to be saved, we should be seeing good works here. Hear what it is for those of you, hear what God has to say through Moses at the giving of the Ten Commandments. What God has to say about those who claim, who sit here deceiving themselves, saying, I know God, God knows me, I'm a believer, but you don't. But you don't. You look at your life, if you were to really look at your heart and your actions, there is no sign other than you showing up for church once a week. Hear what God has to say at the giving of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain If you're going to claim that God knows you God will hold you accountable Turn to Matthew 7:15 7, 7, through 20 Matthew 7:15 through 20 Beware of false prophets who come into you who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves You will recognize them by their fruits Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You claim to be a good tree, where are the fruit? It's talking about ravenous wolves in the flock. I am not talking only about the non-believers of the world. I'm talking about this congregation right now. Your children will not be saved because of you. And yet your faithfulness will put them in a position for God to use his Holy Spirit to save them. Do you want your children growing up knowing all about God, but not being known by God? If not, faithfully do his work. Teach them. Teach them as Daniel taught Nebuchadnezzar and let God choose what he may do with them. The same thing goes for those of you who are here, who maybe are, think you're a Christian on the surface. I'm an American. I, I go to church every Sunday. I don't go just any church. I go to the church that sings old hymns, that doesn't really have like, nice setups, doesn't have big outreach ministries. I go to the like, really studious church. I'm the good one. What's that going to do for you? If you have more head knowledge about God, what is it going to do for you? It'll condemn you all the more. Look further down at, at what happens here in Matthew 7. If we look after verse 20, talking, after talking about those who claim to know God, those, the supposedly good, fruit, good trees with no fruit, and vice versa, look at what God says about the day of judgment. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father it, who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I get chills thinking about standing before the Messiah and him saying, I don't know you. Do not let that be you. If that is you, if you feel like you've put on a facade, you went to a Christian school, I know the Bible, I've read it, forget it. Today, go to your knees, this very moment, and pray that God will make you a good, healthy tree because you are in the scariest position. Even the atheist knows they are an enemy of God. You perhaps have deceived yourself into thinking you belong in the flock, but the good shepherd will weed you out. Before that day comes, turn, turn, And seek the good shepherd so that you may be changed into the sheep. Now, brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, we have moments where we seem to not have fruit, where we act in the flesh and in our old dead ways. Pray that God will empower you and embolden you to act and bear good fruit before the time of the harvest. What I mean by that is if you're going into the workplace, what are you doing in the morning when you wake up? How are you equipping yourself and, and arming yourself to go into the battlefield and to act faithfully in the moments when faithfulness is at its most difficult? What are you doing? Are you preparing yourself? Are you saying, if Daniel could go before a king who has threatened to kill an entire line of people and sing, say forth truth that is to the detriment of Nebuchadnezzar, I can go into my workplace where I have an HR system that says I can talk about my faith and culture. And I'm not talking about just going out and just smacking every person over the head with the gospel. I'm talking about not hiding, unashamedly, being a Christian. If you pray at home when you, before you eat your meal, are you praying at work before you eat your meal? If you take time out of your day on a weekend to, to read your Bible, are you taking time during your break at work to read your Bible? If you read the Bible with your children, stand there and do it at church. Are you doing standing there with your children reading your Bible at home? Is your faith showing fruit? I encourage you to do it. And I want you to be encouraged because we know, just as it is with Nebuchadnezzar, we know that there will be consequences for this. That God will use this discipleship that we are putting onto the world and bringing others along in the faith, that God can use that either one, to glorify God by furthering the judgment of that person, making them a footstool, or on the other hand, maybe God in his wisdom and sovereignty might bring that person to faith through the faithfulness of your sharing. Alright, I'm going to read one last passage, no need to turn, just hear it. Um, uh, hear it today and be encouraged by it. Ephesians 2, 8-10 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works that flow from Jesus Christ were prepared in advance. Was Nebuchadnezzar going to be humbled regardless of Daniel's actions? You betcha. God has a will, and it will be done on this earth. But praise God, he gets to include us in it. He includes us in the working of his will. And it's been prepared in advance. Pray that you will be faithful, and God will make you faithful. Pray that God will be there, that the Holy Spirit will take you through your day, and that you will be a unstoppable force for God in the workplace and those around you. And guess what? If it's successful, it's because God has prepared it in advance the Holy Spirit's undefeated, folks. He will win. He'll win. You're going in knowing you never lose. Be prepared for it. All of us, Redeemer Reform Baptist Church, I pray that we go into this week prepared to work the fields that the Lord has prepared for us. That God has that we will go into all nations making disciples of men. Let's go to work. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the work and words of Daniel. That Daniel, first, before going and being faithful in front of Nebuchadnezzar, he faithfully sought you in prayer. Lord, the prayer came first. The preparation came first. And here we are on your day preparing ourselves to walk faithfully for you throughout the day, Lord. I pray that this week, every single person in that any of us interact with knows something is different about us. Something is different about us. And that difference is Christ. Not because of our own works, not because of what we do, but because of the works of Christ through us, Lord. May you be glorified in us and our works, Lord, on this earth, as done because of the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. May you be glorified in all we do. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.